1: a couple things even before we dive in. That passage, there are so many amazing things in that passage, and some of which are probably familiar to you, certainly if you've heard God's word, and some of which may not be. But I just want to encourage you, because what, when we read a passage like that, one, one challenge could be, it's hard to understand how all the parts connect. Another challenge could be, does this really, is this really relevant to me? It sounds like a lot of things are going on with, the law and works of the law, how does that really affect me? So there are a couple challenges that we are going to have to work through, and I just want to acknowledge that because I think if we can work through those and understand exactly what is being said, and then have an appreciation for how this is so, so relevant and applies to us, and I think God has a lot of things to teach us, and... And more than just the information that our head can absorb, my prayer is like our heart gets moved in some different directions because of today. I'm grateful for Eli reading. We've been working through the book of Galatians, and I'm, I'm going to give you a few key words to really focus in on, on this passage. So maybe that helps a little bit as we follow the train of thought of Paul, which is really following the train of thought of the Holy Spirit who gave those words to Paul. So we're going to be in 11 through 21, we're going to work our way through these verses slowly, carefully, so that we can understand them. We're gonna tuck away several words and the first word that I want you to tuck away here to understand this passage is the word confrontation. It's the word confrontation because what we read is a significant confrontation a significant confrontation from two people in the Bible that play major roles, Peter and Paul. And I want us to get deeper into these characters and what happened and why are they, seems like they're on the same team, why would they find themselves in opposition like Paul describes it here. Again, I'm not assuming this passage is super easy to work through, but I do think we can understand it and I do think it'll be extremely helpful for us when we do. Look at verse 11. It says when Cephas, so that's another name for Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, so you you recognize there that Peter is one of the leaders of the movement following Jesus. He was one of Jesus' main disciples, like his right-hand disciple. And and so when Peter comes to Antioch, that's significant because Antioch is not just the home of a lot of Jewish Christians, but a lot of Gentile Christians. As a matter of fact, Antioch at that time was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, and it was not a hub, but the hub of Christians that were Gentiles. So in this hub of Gentile Christians, Peter comes to see exactly what is going on there. We're not surprised by that. So many good things that happened in and through this church That Peter was checking it out. But there was an issue. Paul says in verse 12, or in verse 11, as as he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. And I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. If we were to put that in our language, we would say, Paul speaking, I had to get in his face. And I had to get in his face and I had to call him out because he deserved it which definitely is a surprise like what would make paul have to get in the face of peter what wrong did he do what line did he cross i what did he do that that could have warranted that kind of aggressive confrontation well we're told exactly what it was in verse 12 verse 12 for before certain men came from james so having your mind there james is in jerusalem kind of the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And it almost seems like men came, like that almost seems like an official delegation. It doesn't say so in scripture, but some official delegation from James comes to, from Jerusalem to Antioch. Before that happens, Peter was eating with Gentiles. So they gathered around a table. Is it the Lord's Supper? It doesn't say, but is it just a meal? Likely. And Peter is eating with the Gentiles. But when the group from Jerusalem, from James, comes, what does it say? He drew back. And he separated himself. Why would he do that? It says he feared the circumcision party. He feared the group of Jews who had been sent from Jerusalem up to Antioch. Before this group came, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was not making any distinction. If they're a brother in Christ, if they're a sister in Christ, I'm eating with them. We're all around the table. That's the way it was going down before, which we read that and go, well, of course. But for a Jew like Peter, this was no small step. Because you go back in the first two thirds of your Bible, there is great concern expressed in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. There's great concern expressed for getting kind of intermixed and contaminated by idol worship, and so you had to draw lines so you didn't fall into like worshiping idols, and you had to like we worship the one true God. We're not going to worship idols. We're not going to take take part in any f- sort of feasts or rituals to the idols. We We are pure. We're going to maintain distinction. So much so that tradition built up over time. Sometimes religion and tradition get intertwined, don't they? And the tradition began to get so intertwined with this whole operation of like, not only are we going to try to avoid idols, but you know what? The best practice, build a big fence and decide you are, you're not going to even eat with Gentiles. That way you're not contaminated or polluted by their idol worship. We're going to draw these lines really, really sharp. We're not even going to eat with them. And that is the way Peter had lived until Jesus. Until Jesus came and blew all of that up. Issued a change that would be unlike any other change. A change for everyone. A change for all time. In which Jesus fulfilled all of those rituals, those requirements, all the law. And actually, as Jesus came, the the food laws, the purity laws, all those were fulfilled in him and set aside. As a matter of fact, this was such a big deal for Peter. You can read this in Acts 10 if you want to read it later. Peter even had to have a special vision to go, you can eat with them now. You can eat with Gentiles. As a matter of fact, you should be eating with Gentiles. There is no distinction. The middle wall has been broken down. You can now eat together as the one family of God. This was what Peter had to overcome. So again, it's no small thing that in Antioch, he is sitting down with a meal, with with Gentiles and eating. But then, but then the people from Jerusalem came. It's not that hard to even look around in culture and see how much we are influenced by peer pressure. How much because everybody else is doing, I guess I should. And that doesn't just happen in middle school. That happens everywhere. We want to be seen as in the right group. We don't want to look bad. And for some reason, something was triggered in Peter's mind. Paul gets in his face And what he doesn't say is, Peter, how rude. I mean, don't you have any manners? You don't get up and walk away. That is not where this goes. Peter's not being rude. It's not just being inhospitable. It's not like, you know, he was sat at an awkward table at a banquet and he got a better offer, so why don't you come over to this? That's not exactly what's going on here. It tells us there are some problems going on. One of those problems, at least one of those problems is Peter was afraid. He was fearful of the crowd from Jerusalem. Have you ever done anything just because you're afraid of other people? Have you ever said anything? Have you ever agreed with anything? Gone along with anything? Only because you're just afraid. Maybe it was rational. Maybe it was irrational. What will they think? What will they say? Maybe they're not where I am. What is not driving here is the fear of the Lord. What is not driving is love for brothers and sisters. What, I mean, what scripture says totally driving this is, yeah, I just don't want to look at bad in front of those people. There's some fear element going on, but not only fear, Paul calls out not just the fear, but also the hypocrisy. Did you see that? that the hypocrisy. So, Peter, it was okay for you to do this as long as there were no People from Jerusalem are out. But now you're acting like this is a problem. You get up, you separate, you withdraw from them. Like, what's going on? Like, how, how hypocritical when this group comes in. Like, we know Jesus broke down the middle wall that has divided us. So, how hypocritical for you. At one moment, it's like totally fine. And the next moment, go, oh, yeah, I guess we better not. I've rethought. My, you know, it's like, what, what a hypocrite doing something very different. Verse 13, here's another layer of this problem. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews that were with Peter acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, even Barnabas, who, Barnabas was on the side of the Gentiles getting the message, getting it clear, being included in the family of Jesus Christ. Barnabas was on, the, on that side and now even Barnabas is going, Ah, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe, maybe in this setting we better do something different the influence that Peter had others were following. And again, this isn't just a matter of poor poor manners or oh, I slipped up, you know, my bad. This isn't one of those deals and that's why Paul gets in his face. Verse 14 he says, "When I saw when I saw their conduct," and he doesn't just say, "When I saw their conduct was wrong." Do you notice the way he frames this? I think it's so important. I hope I hope you see this. I hope we never forget it when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Do you hear why Paul was so concerned? One thing was on his mind, and that is that the truth of the gospel was at stake. There was an issue of clarity. So Nick just led us in song after song after song where we celebrated the gospel, where the unfaithful can come. Where we can say, once your enemy, now seated at your table. Where we can say, it is well with my soul because my sin has been nailed to the cross and I don't carry it anymore. And what Peter says is that that gospel, or what Paul says is that gospel isn't just something we would affirm verbally but it ought to take root. It ought to like make a difference in how we live and what we say and how we act and our orientation, how we treat others. So it's not just the confession we make, although we heard some of those powerful confessions through baptism, it's not just that. There's a, there's conduct that's in line with that, and then there's conduct that's out of step with that. There's ways and choices we make which show I'm living in line with the gospel, and then there are other steps we make where we Make it unclear. We make it not, not so, uh, not so real to people's lives. And Paul says, "What's going on here is not a personality thing. I got in Peter's face because I didn't like how he was. It's not that. It's a gospel issue. If you're new or new-ish to Christianity." We will say the word gospel a lot, we will talk about the good news a lot, and unfortunately sometimes we don't always define it as clearly as we should. Because of that, sometimes people think Christianity is all about, you know, just trying to be the best person person you can be, And, and trying to do your best, and hopefully that's true most of the time of us. When Paul is saying, Peter, you're not walking in line, in step with the gospel. The gospel there is the core of Christianity. It's an announcement that Christ has come, that God has come into this world, that Jesus is born. We sang about that a minute ago. We were in our sins. We were dead without hope and without life. We deserve the wrath of God because of all the wrong things we've done. And Jesus went to the cross for our sins so that we, we would not pay for them eternally apart from God but he paid for them for us and he rose again to give us an entirely new life that changes things nothing can be the same this is the gospel and that makes a difference how you live like once your enemy now seated at the table and we recognize so if we're in Christ all of us are seated around this table we're reconciled together we're adopted together we're part of this family yes you individually yes you individually but all of us. And that should make a difference in how we treat each other. So that's the question. It's like, this isn't just about, okay, what are the rules we're supposed to keep now? It's like, no, no. how is life in line with this event that changed the world, Jesus going to the cross and rising from the dead? We don't have two tables. There is no JV table and then the varsity table for all like the serious ones. There, there aren't class distinctions when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the family of God. There are these distinctions that we might be tempted to make, frankly, that we do make. It's like this, it's just a bulldozer to those. Things are different. If your identity is you are a son or daughter of God, doesn't that affect how you live? If you have a purpose to give your life for Jesus's glory, doesn't that affect how you would treat another person? Who, who may be different from you, but you share spiritual DNA with. Your hope is their hope. Do we have clarity on this? Do we recognize we're united in Christ because of this announcement of good news, because of the gospel? And our lives are meant to be so, so shaped by that, that we're in step. Our behavior, our language, our allegiance is in step with that. Our question isn't like, what rules do I need to keep? Minimum requirements here. Our questions are not, how do I look good in front of others? How do I save face when I don't look so good? Our questions are not, how do I not blow it? How do I keep everyone, at least the important people around me, happy? We have a whole different set of questions. How does my life show that this grace is amazing? How does the gospel address oh, the petty frustrations I have and the way I want to take it out on somebody. How does the gospel address the prejudice a racist inclination of our heart? It says, wait a minute. We all were undeserving. How do you think, and in what way are you superior to another person? Grace is always a mismatch between the giver and the recipient here, for all of us. So when we, we take steps out of step with the gospel, this is exactly what's being called upon here, conduct in step with the gospel. So there's a confrontation, but let's keep following what Paul talks about next, because it's not just a confrontation. The confrontation leads to an explanation. The confrontation, that Paul, aggressive confrontation, leads to an explanation. Explanation. And some of these verses are so critical, but they're also not the easiest to follow and kind of follow the train of thought. But I I want to work through this explanation and maybe with a paraphrase. uh, Much of this I picked up by a New Testament scholar named John Barclay, but I, I want to work through, hopefully, and hopefully a paraphrase can shine the flashlight on what's already there for you to see it in verse 15. It almost is like Paul's continuing a conversation with Peter. So he's, he's rebuked him. But now it's almost like he's saying we. Is this a continuing of the conversation? Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth. And we're not Gentile. I wonder if, if there was the convention in, in like we have in our language to say Gentile sinners. To kind of put that in quotes. What he's saying is you and I, Peter, we're Jews. And we've grown up thinking we've grown up Thinking we're categorically distinct from the Gentile sinners. And frankly, if you think you're distinct from, you think you're better, you're better than those Gentile sinners. This has been our mindset, but Peter, you know something's changed. We know that a person in verse 16 is not justified by the works of the law, by, by the Mosaic law. We're not, we're not justified, we're not considered righteous, we're not considered in good standing, okay, like. Settled in our souls, settled with God, have a right place with others. We're not settled through the works of the law, the, the practices of the law of Moses, like Passover and circumcision and feasts and sacrifices. But we're justified through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. We throw that around, but if this is like absolute reliance on Jesus and Him alone. Total dependence on Him and not on ourselves. Plus nothing, plus nothing. We are trusting in him. We're justified through him. We put our trust in Christ. That's the way we could ever be considered righteous. No one's justified in any other way, not through feasts, not through sacrifices. We're justified by Jesus and what he did on the cross. Verse 17 again, follow. if in our endeavor, if we're trying to be, you know, trying to get that divine affirmation, that justification in Christ, and, and people roll up in Antioch and see us eating and say, they're sinners, they're eating with sinners, they're sinners too, then are you saying? I mean, the, 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 the question is, is, did Christ lead us to, to sin? Is he a servant of sin? Is that, is that what he's doing? Because Christ said we could eat with Gentiles. Is somehow Christ making us sin? Absolutely not. Because our righteousness only comes through Him. Even verse 18, if I rebuild, if I'm trying to rebuild or reinstate keeping all the law, the rules, the practices as the measurement of righteousness, if I want to play that game, I end up proving to be a transgressor. I'm a lawbreaker. Because I'm not living... Jewishly every single time but through the law I died to the law the truth is Peter the law has no effect it's no longer for me the ultimate standard of righteousness so that I could live to God so much is packed in there I hope you have clarity on what Paul's emphasizing and we're going to have to make a little turn because maybe for you the issue is not works of the Mosaic law I don't know, too many people doing goat sacrifices and keeping all the feasts and all those sorts of things and going, see, I'm justified by my goat sacrifice. So nobody nobody in our time does that, but my, do we find ways to justify ourselves? Everybody does. So for you, it may not be the works of the law like it was in this early church. But what is it you count on to say, you know what, I'm okay, I'm all right. I feel, you know, I feel justified in this. Paul was talking about, I think, a greater issue here. That we want to be justified. And here's, here's what you know and I know. We know, we try to be justified in our, of ourselves. We try to go, you know what, here's the standard. And guess what? I happen to meet the standard. I meet it. I'm righteous. But we know that's a silly game to play. Even in sports, I've been watching some of the uh, Olympic trials. So... When gymnastics comes up, can you imagine the, the person doing their exercise and going, oh, I give myself a 10. You nobody does that. Or, or someone diving in the pool going, I'm going to count that as 100 meters even though I only swam 25, and I win. My time was the best. We all know it doesn't work that way. There's got to be something outside of us to go, here's the standard. Here's what's right. Here's whether you meet the standard or miss the standard. I can not just make that up in my mind. We all know that as much as we want to go, you know what, I feel good about myself. I'm in the right. The question here in this passage really is like, what are you counting on to meet the standard? By the standard, I mean God's perfect holy standard. What are you counting on? It's Father's Day. Are you counting on being a good dad three quarters of the time? Maybe God will bend a little bit and grade on a curve. Are you counting on being better than a lot of people you could name right now? What are you counting on to be righteous? I find much of what drives our fears is that I don't think I measure up. Much of what drives a frantic effort to like, make sure you think I'm okay is like, I'm not sure I measure up. And we could use the word righteousness, we don't, but we could. We could talk about, it, like, I'm justified because I've got X amount in the bank account. My family is, you know, is relatively nice. My house is like, okay, I'm, I've had a good career. I've, I've tried to be a nice person. I've tried to be a good human being. And I've, I've tried all these things. And, and I have Jesus too. And there's that. And we add it all together and go, like, I'll put it all in the blender. I'm, I'm okay. And what Paul says is the only way you're going to be justified is through Christ, through faith in Christ alone. That's it. But is it, it for us? Could it be your image is not what you want? The image you're trying to project? The image you wish you could project? If you could only get to this place, then I would feel okay. Much of what drives our less than kind words when we gossip. You heard about so-and-so. It's terrible. Much of what drives that is, but I'm not. I would do better. As a matter of fact, I, I do better regularly much of what drives our social media posts, is we just have to prove we're in the right. And when there's a whole tribe of us that are in the right, and we feel pretty good about this, this tribe of us. that, though everybody else is doing wrong, we're in the right. Galatians just hammers this message home. You are only righteous by faith in Christ. It's powerful. And this is going to take a lifetime to work out. And just when I think like, okay, I'm really resting in Christ. I'm like, nope. Because the Lord, like something else touches something I care about. And I go, I've got to have that too. And Jesus, of course, but that too. Galatians. Here in in chapter 2, we start with a confrontation. And we go to an explanation. But it, it keeps building. And I love the way this chapter ends. It's almost like Paul drawing us into some of the The mechanics of how how things work here, the explanation actually leads to a vision of what life is all about. So not only do I have a confrontation that leads to an explanation, but it gives a vision of what life is all about in these last verses, especially verse 20. If ever there was a verse to memorize or write on an index card and meditate on and chew on, it would be verse 20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. There's so much in there. I mean, My goodness, when we're talking about the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, and Paul could say, my old self died with Christ on that cross. And then can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. My new self has been reconstituted, (laughs) like Christ is alive in me. This is not the same. I'm, I'm new. Christ lives in me now. And yet he also says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So I'm living in the flesh. I have weaknesses, and I, I have limits because I'm in the flesh. I'm, I'm human, and you are human. The life we now live, we've been crucified with Christ, but we're alive. Christ is risen. We are too. and We live in the flesh, but we live by faith in the Son of God, dependence on Christ, trusting in Christ, relying on Christ. And notice the way it's characterized, who loved me, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Like, I don't nullify the grace of God. I don't reject this divine gift. If righteousness came through the law, then why was Christ dying? If we could achieve it on our own, what was he doing on the cross? It doesn't come that way. It comes only through Christ. Close our time. There's so much in those verses. Some of you, this is your life first. This is the way you envision your whole life, and that's so important. But to close our time today, I at least wanted to leave you with a few observations. Just some things to chew on, some things to think about, especially in light of verse 20 there. One is for Christians, there is a significant marked difference. There's a change in our lives and how we live. Did you hear that? I mean, I hope you heard that in verse 20. Like there's a no longer, and then there's like a new life. There's something before Christ. There's something with Christ. The life before Christ is dead. We're we're not the same, we're different. This is over and over again. This isn't just Galatians 2. This is all over the Bible, it talks about going from death to life, from darkness to light, from being an enemy to being a friend, from going from no hope to having hope, from going, to, from relying on yourself to trusting totally in Jesus, from rebellion to obedience. If you're unsure whether like there's been this marked change, it would be worth your time to talk to someone, maybe, maybe even before you leave today. Maybe you say, I don't have that dramatic conversion, but there there's a marked difference for those who are with Christ. It shows up. It can't help but show up. Now I also, in this passage, I notice Paul's okay with the tension of talking kind of a, on two sides at some. Did you notice he said, I died, but I'm alive. Actually, it's Christ that lives, but I live. Paul's not playing word games. This isn't nonsense. This isn't visual, visualization techniques that he's trying to master. He's okay with the tension to say, with Christ I died and yet I'm alive. Christ is living, yet I am living in the flesh. It's not as if he's saying, no longer call me Paul, just call me Jesus. I have no personality. I'm nothing. All I look at is, you know, it's like he's not playing games with this. Of course you have a personality. Of course you make decisions. Of course you give effort to things. Of course you have allegiances. And yet behind that is an energizing, powerful person who brings all good intentions to life and completely makes you new. Christ is living in you. By the way, I love the way Paul kind of uses this as an introduction to now talk about the Holy Spirit. You read through Galatians 1 and 2, you don't read anything about the Holy Spirit. But the minute minute Paul says, Christ lives in me, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, he will talk about the Holy Spirit. It's almost as if it's... How does, how does a human body of Christ live in someone through the Spirit of Jesus Christ? And our lives are grounded in Him. And the other observation I find in verse 20 is the way Paul describes Jesus. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who, and he could fill in that blank in a million ways and still be totally accurate, totally true, right? I live by faith in the Son of God who rules the world, who made everything, who's in charge of everything, who's in control. Paul could have said all that. It would be true. But what Paul chose to say, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The one who loved me. The one who meets me again and again when I am not the most lovable person. The one who gave himself for me, not when I was like, man, he's trying hard. No, no, not then. When I was a sinner. Does that not give us a picture when it says Christ lives in me? Does it not give us a picture of what our lives would look like when the Son of God lives in us and what that might look like as we encounter people? What it would look like is Christ sacrificially self-giving love toward other people. That, that should be what people encounter when they meet Christians is self-giving love. Lay down rights. Lay down, lay down things that we could hold on to. Because we've been loved so much, it pushes us to love others. We will need that this week in VBS. There surely will be a situation or two where we will be tempted to go, that isn't what I deserve. And then we step back and go, but Christ is living in me. He loved me. He gave himself for me. I can certainly love others. We'll need that not just in in these rooms for VBS. We're gonna go out into a world where it's hard and it's frustrating. It's irritating at times. It's complicated. What do we do? Where can we start? Same situation that just grinded us down. Where where can we start? Oh, Oh, Lord, help me to love others because I've been loved. So much more we could say, but maybe chew on this again. The confrontation we started with pushes us to ask, am I walking in step with the good news? But the confrontation leads to an explanation. My question here is, Is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? What else? What else? And then that gives us a vision of life. Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. May God just push this deep into our heart, not giving us more information today, but giving us a vision, not just like my sins are taken care of, but now I live, I'm living. I've got days, I've got breath, I've got energy that pour into people around me. Father, help us to see that. Help us to take these words that have meant so so much to so many Christians over the years and help this not to be just slogans, but help it to be reality in our lives. Father, thank you for the reminder that our righteousness comes through your Son only. And as we sing And again, confirm in our hearts and through our worship that that is true. I pray that you would accept uh, our worship because of Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen.